beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we continue our series on special encounters that God had with some of his children. In Genesis 18, we see that three men posing as travelers have come to visit Abraham. Some people suggest that Abraham knew that it was the Lord and two angels who had appeared to him. As proof, they offer the fact that Abraham bowed down before them, that he addressed the leader of the group as Lord, and that he offered them a sumptuous meal. Yet this is not proof that Abraham knew that the Lord was visiting him. In those days, hospitality was a sacred duty. What Abraham did for these men was in accordance with the customs of the day. In Abraham's day, you're expected to provide food and water and shelter to anyone who was traveling. The writer of Hebrews commands that Christians are not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers. He says that thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Clearly, he is, re- he is referencing the account of how Abraham showed hospitality to the three men in Genesis 18. Up front, Abraham did not know who these travelers were. What our text makes clear is that one of these men was the Lord. His first question for Abraham is, where is Sarah, your wife? Our text makes clear that she was listening to the interaction between Abraham and And these men. And thus we see that in this encounter, the Lord is not really meeting with Abraham. In Genesis 17, he had already told Abraham he would give him a son by Sarah. Abraham laughed and told God he was content to have Ishmael as heir. But the Lord insisted that Sarah would bear him a son in about a year's time. And in our text, the Lord returns to give Sarah. This same message. In our text, Sarah laughed to herself when she heard the Lord say that she would bear a son. It was not a genuine laugh. It was the cynical and bitter laugh of a woman who had faced the tragedy of barrenness and was now far too old to have a child. Yet God confronts Sarah with a question. He asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a really poor translation of the Hebrew text. The text actually asks, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? By asking this question, the Lord reveals something important about himself. He is a wonderful God who does wondrous works. What do I mean by wondrous works? Works that fill the hearts of those who see and experience them with wonder. Works that are awe-inspiring. Works that cause our hearts to be amazed, that result in us glorifying God. What's the Christian life like for you, beloved? Are the struggles, the burdens, the sorrows of life getting you down? Have you fallen into a rut of doing the expected things that make up a life of faith without any awe or amazement at God's wondrous works? 
Do you know the Lord as our wonderful God? I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Let us glorify the Lord for his wonderful work of giving Sarah a son. We'll consider how Sarah laughed at the Lord's promise, how the Lord changed Sarah's laughter into joy, and how we are to be filled with wonder at God's great works. The verses leading up to our text show us something amazing. In Genesis 15, when the Lord appeared to Abram, he did so first in a vision. And then to assure Abram that he would keep his promises, the Lord passed through the carcasses of the dead animals and birds in the form of a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. God revealed himself in majesty and in glory. His appearance to Abraham caused a dreadful and great darkness to fall on Abram. Yet in our text, the Lord and his companions come to Abraham in human form. They were willing to eat a covenantal meal prepared by Abraham. This is the only time in Scripture before the coming of Jesus Christ that God ate a meal in the presence of a human being. Eating together is a sign of fellowship. We see the Lord willing to enter into close communion with Abraham. Later in the Bible, Abraham is called the friend of God. And so in our text, we see the Lord and his companions draw near to Abraham and Sarah in intimate fellowship. The first question they asked Abraham is, where is Sarah, your wife? He said, she's in the tent. And then for the first time in this text, the Lord speaks. Prior to this, our text spoke of three men and of what they said and did. But now the living God of heaven and earth speaks. The Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. It was around this time that it would have dawned on Abraham that it was the Lord who was speaking to him. How would Abraham have discerned that it was the Lord who had come to visit him? It's because this guest spoke of private things, things not known to anyone else. Genesis 17 tells us of how the Lord had changed Abram's name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. The Lord had promised to bless Sarah and to give Abraham a son by her. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? If you were Abraham, would you have told anyone else about God's announcement that Sarah would have a son? Just imagine the reaction of your servants. When their 100-year-old master married to a 90-year-old barren woman told them about the fact that they were going to have a baby. If Abraham, a man of faith, struggled to believe, we can imagine that his servants would have mocked and ridiculed him behind his back. Yet this visitor knew all about Abraham's secret. 
He repeated the promise that the Lord had made to him. He used Sarah's new name when speaking about her. And so it becomes clear to Abraham that one of his visitors was the Lord himself in human form. Moses inserts an editorial comment into this story to make sure we understand Abraham and Sarah's circumstances. Verse 11 says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Not only had Sarah been infertile all her life, she was now 90 years old and postmenopausal. From a human perspective, there was absolutely no chance of her bearing children. The promise that she would be a mother the next year was absurd. Our text indicates that Sarah Our text indicates that Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent, and her reaction mirrors her circumstances. She laughed to herself saying, "After I'm worn out and old, and my Lord is old, shall I have Pleasure? The word Sarah uses for being worn out is used in the Bible to describe clothing being worn out. When something is worn out, it's no longer fit for the purpose for which it was made. The fact that Sarah uses this word to describe herself gives us a window into her self-image. We need to understand, beloved, that in ancient times, one of the primary purposes of marriage was to have children. It's still supposed to be that way, even though many in our culture choose not to have children because of their selfishness. One of the purposes of marriage is that the human race is to be continued and increased, that under the blessing of God, husband and wife will be fruitful and increase in number. In ancient times, when women were not able to have children, This was seen as a major failing in their lives. Sarah struggled with her barrenness for many years. Her barrenness affected her self-image. Even though the Bible describes Sarah as a very beautiful woman, she would not have seen herself in that way. She would have felt like a great big disappointment to her husband. We see this come out in Genesis 16, when Sarah offers her maidservant, Hagar, to Abram. She speaks about how the Lord had prevented her from bearing children, but offers Abram her young, fertile maidservant with the hope that she might obtain children by her. When Sarah looked at herself, she did not see herself as a beautiful woman. She saw herself as barren, infertile, insufficient, Inferior, she looked at herself with loathing and contempt. When Hagar had Ishmael, she looked at Sarah with contempt. Sarah was very angry with Abraham because of this. She said, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. While Sarah's anger is outwardly focused on Abraham, she was actually angry at her own failure to conceive and bear a son. And this, beloved, gives us perspective into Sarah's laughter. 
Our text says that she laughed to herself. There's two different forms of laughter. There is happy laughter rooted in joy. There's also sad laughter rooted in despair. Sarah's laughter was not happy laughter. It was sad, cynical laughter. It was rooted in unbelief and despair. It was a get real, that will never happen kind of laughter. So why did Sarah laugh in this way? Well, because from her perspective, it was impossible for her to have a son. Her question reveals why she thought that. Sarah said to herself, after I am worn out till my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Many people think that her question, shall I have this pleasure, refers to her barrenness. They think that Sarah is talking about the pleasure of receiving a child, of having her stigma of being barren taken away. But that is not what our text indicates. The word for pleasure used in our text refers to sexual pleasure. Could be that because of their age, Abraham and Sarah were not enjoying sex anymore. It's also possible that the Hagar incident had created a wedge between them that caused them to stop having sex. Whatever the case may be, it's understandable that Sarah laughs when she's told she would bear a son. In her mind, that was impossible, not just because of her barrenness or her age, but also because she and Abraham were not having sex anymore. In our text, we see how Sarah laughed at the Lord's promise. We might easily find fault with her for that, but we shouldn't. Sarah was just a normal person like us. When we read about saints in the Old and New Testament, we often think of them as being supermen and women. Because they're in the Bible, we think of them being extra spiritual people. But they were flesh and blood humans, just like us. They lived in a sin-stained world, just like us. They faced trials and struggles and sorrows, just like us. They reacted to different situations with real human emotions, just like us. Like Sarah, it can be really hard for us to hang on to God's promises. God promises us, I am always with you. But sometimes it feels like he's a million miles away. God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But at times when life overwhelms us, we feel abandoned by God. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. But there are times when we feel utterly powerless to go on. God promises that in all things, he works for the good of those who love him. But when our life is in shambles, we have a hard time believing that. Trusting God is hard when life is full of disappointments, struggles, and sorrows. 
Brings us to our second point, and we'll see how the Lord changed Sarah's laughter to joy. In our text, we see that the Lord responds to Sarah's cynical laughter. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Even though Sarah had laughed to herself, the Lord had hurt her. Our God is an all-knowing God. David David later expresses in Psalm 139 saying, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knew exactly what was on Sarah's mind and on her heart. Sarah denies that she laughed because she was afraid. Yet God confronts her. He said, no, but you did laugh. God points out Sarah's disbelief. He exposes Sarah's cynical and hopeless laughter. And yet he does so in a gentle, compassionate way. The Lord understands her circumstances. He knows the burden of barrenness that she has carried through all these years. He knew of her negative self-image, of her self-loathing. And he responds by asking a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I really don't understand why Bible translators didn't translate this question literally. The word translated hard is wonderful in the original Hebrew. It's the key word in our text. What the Lord is asking Sarah And through her asking us is, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? In the Bible, we see the hand of God at work in a series of wondrous births. Genesis 1 and 2 records the birth of the universe. By his powerful voice, God spoke and he brought into existence things that were not. Our text records God's promise of the wondrous birth of Isaac, born to a woman who was barren and to a man who was 100 years old and as good as dead. Exodus tells us about the birth of the nation of Israel. In Exodus 34, verse 10, the Lord promised, Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any, in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. That word marvels is the same word we translated as wonders in our text. Psalm 126 is a song the returned exiles sang after the Lord brought them back from captivity in Babylon. No nation had ever experienced the blessing of being able to return to and take possession of their own land after being exiled. And so God's people sang, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. 
Yeah, beloved, all these wondrous works of God pale in comparison with an even more magnificent, more amazing work that God did after this. I'm referring to God's wondrous work of sending his son into this world. When we speak about Christ's birth, we're speaking about one of the most wondrous of all God's works. Who would ever have thought that God would intervene in human history by coming down from heaven and becoming a real human being like us? The way Christ came in human flesh is a most marvelous work of God. Luke writes about Jesus' conception and birth in Luke 1. He tells us of how an angel appeared to Mary and told her, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary asked, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The idea that with God all things are possible is an expression that refers back to the birth of Isaac. In Genesis 18, verse 14, the Lord assured Abraham and Sarah that despite their old age, they would receive a son. He asked, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The miraculous conception and birth of Jesus Christ is one of these marvels that the Lord has created It's an awesome work he did, one that leaves us astounded and amazed. It's not just that God caused Mary to conceive and bear a son without the involvement of a man. What's truly amazing about the birth of Jesus is that God the Son, the creator of the world, became a creature. The potter becomes the clay. The sovereign ruler becomes a slave. God the Son, who is and remains true and eternal God, takes on a real human body. He became a living, breathing person, just like us. And what's even more wonderful is considering the reason why God sent his Son into this world. He came to redeem us, to save us from our sins to bear the punishment we deserved, that we might be restored to righteousness and life. In our text, the Lord said to Abraham, at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. That son was the one through whom the Lord had promised he would make Abraham into a great nation. The Lord had promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. That son was the one through whom the Messiah would come. That's why God's work in giving Abraham and Sarah a son was such a wondrous work. When the Lord promised Sarah that Sarah would have a son in a year's time, he was not just speaking to Abraham. He was also addressing Sarah With these words, the Lord reaffirms his promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son. But there is more than that happening here. God gives a time frame. He says that this will take place in about a year's time. 
With this comes an instruction. Abraham and Sarah, you need to rekindle your sexual relationship. We see God's grace and loving care expressed so beautifully. He knew of the struggles and tensions this couple faced, both from not having children and also from the Hagar incident. God lovingly restores the intimacy of their marriage. Genesis 21 tells us the result. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Do you know what Abraham and Sarah called their son? Following the Lord's command, they called him Isaac. Do you know what the name Isaac means? Isaac means laughter. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. What we see, beloved, is that the Lord changed Sarah's cynical and bitter laughter into joy and happiness. Through his wondrous work of giving a 90-year-old barren woman a son, the Lord completely changed her perspective on life. God turned her sorrow and her struggles into awe and amazement. Sarah is confronted with God's amazing power of giving life to the dead. She learns to know the Lord as a compassionate and gracious God who truly cared for her. God spoke to her heart in a way that revolutionized her life. She saw the Lord as an amazingly good God. She rejoices in being the recipient of his rich blessing. Brings us to our final point, how we are to be filled with wonder at God's great works. We've seen how God transformed Sarah's life. But what about us, beloved? What if we're stuck just like Sarah was? What if our perspectives are clouded by the trials and the sorrows of life? What if we've prayed hundreds of times for children, but God continues to withhold them? What if we've pleaded for healing in the midst of sickness, but know that humanly speaking, our death is just a matter of time? What if the struggles of life are overwhelming us, and we've grown cynical and bitter about God's promises, because nothing positive ever seems to happen in our lives? Perhaps it's good to begin answering these questions by examining the situation of those who would love to receive children, but to whom the Lord hasn't granted them at this time. We are certainly allowed to pray to God, and we may expect all good things from his hand. The Bible is clear about the fact that the Lord loves us with a deep and an abiding love. God loves to give good gifts to his children. But what if God doesn't answer this prayer 
favorably? What if we never receive children? Paul refers to our text in Galatians 4. It references the fact that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, Hagar, and the other by the free woman, Sarah. He writes, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. Paul uses these women figuratively, saying that they represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are slaves. Paul compares this to the Jews who were enslaved by works righteousness. He contrasts them to the Jerusalem above that is free and says she is our mother. Paul's point is that by grace in Christ, we are free from the slavery of trying to earn our righteousness because God has freely given us this in Jesus Christ. And then Paul quotes from Isaiah 54, verse 1. He writes, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. In ancient times, a woman had no children or a woman had no husband. It was considered a nobody. Yet the radical grace of God is that a woman's worth is not, having, not in having a husband or in having children. Paul's point is that if you are in the gospel, you are bountifully blessed and you will be fruitful. Mark 3 records the occasion when Jesus was so busy he didn't have time even to eat. When his family heard about it, they went out to take charge of him, thinking he was out of his mind. When they arrived at the house where Jesus was, Jesus got word that his mother and brothers were outside seeking him. He answered saying, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at the people around him, in whose lives he was bearing fruit, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This was a radical statement in the day and age in which Jesus lived. In those days, family was everything. Your children were your joy, your treasure, they were your social security, your old age pension. But what Jesus teaches is that the barren woman can have more children than the fertile one by the grace of God. Who are your children? They are the people you have an impact on for the Lord. They are those who are blessed to come to faith or grow in their faith through their contact with you. This message is not just for women. It is for all of us. It doesn't matter who you are or what your background is. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about you, whether it sees you as a success or as a failure. 
What matters is that by the grace of God, you bear fruit in your life. That you show your wonder and amazement at how richly he has blessed you in Jesus Christ. That you glorify and praise him so others will see and say, the Lord has done great things for you. Beloved, do you ever watch and see what happens when you read young children a book? Their eyes light up. Their imagination takes over. They're filled with wonder and amazement at what's happening in the story that you're reading them. Do we still have that kind of wonder and amazement in us? Do we have an eye for God's wondrous works? Do they cause us to respond with wonder and awe? Not just talking about what God has done for us in the past, in granting us a wondrous salvation in Jesus Christ. I'm also speaking about God's goodness and grace in our present day lives. Do you see him at work through all the trials and hardships, through all the struggles and the sorrows of life? May God give us eyes to see and hearts to discern. May he demonstrate his goodness and blessing in our lives in such a way that we pause and that we take note. Change most often happens slowly. So slowly we're not even aware of it. But God continues to work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He supports us through our hardships. He matures us through the struggles of life. But pray that we may recognize his work, that we may laugh and be filled with joy. Pray that we may stand amazed at his goodness, that we may praise him for the wonders of his grace. Our God is a wonderful God, worthy of our praise and adoration. Amen. Let's respond by rising and singing the words that the returned exiles from Babylon sang, Psalm 126.